So this text comes as a deep burden to my heart for all of us. I'm preaching to myself today, you guys. I need to hear this. So, selfishly, I'm going to do that for about an hour. So buckle up and strap in because it's about to get real. What does it mean to be ashamed, I ask myself, of the gospel? Why would Paul have said, I am not ashamed of it? What would have caused him to say something like that? Well, if you think about historically, what was Paul doing? He was in Rome. What was he working through in the book of Romans? He was settling a dispute between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles arguing and debating as to why Gentiles would have been allowed into the promises of the kingdom. Why are they inheriting what has been given to them? Who, who said, basically, right? There's a huge dispute that Paul wanted to settle in Rome. Here's all these Gentile believers, these pagans who are coming to the faith. And Paul wanted to declare clearly, as the apostle, he, he said himself, to the Gentiles, very clearly why, that there is no distinction between the two, as he says in Ephesians chapter 2. The dividing wall, he says, is broken. And I believe this is an exposition of that very thing. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has now been broken. They are your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You have now been, as he says in Ephesians, made one man. And as we know, he carries on. This argument is one of the longest arguments ever written, I think, in antiquity. And it's the longest argument in Scripture, and it goes from chapter 1 through 11. And I would implore you today that if, at the end of this sermon, if you cannot result, come to the conclusion, the same conclusion Paul does in, in the end of Romans 11, you're missing something. You're missing something. Let that intrigue you a bit. Let that inspire you to go through the enti- argument in its entirety. I'm going to give you a homework assignment before we dive in here. Today, I would encourage you, let me implore you, to sit down and read Romans 1-11 through 11 in its entirety without stopping. Don't click on any of the links if you're using computer software. Don't go into the, any of the searches, right? Don't, don't get scatterbrained and, side, and sidetracked. Do me a favor as your pastor who loves you and is encouraging you. Read Romans 1-11 through 11 in its entirety today. And then ask yourself at the very end of it, do this challenge to yourself. Am I concluding with Paul in doxology, in worship? Am I excited about what it means to be a Christian? Am I eager to engage the world with one of the most powerful messages, the most powerful message of all time? That God has redeemed us in Christ. So let's dive in. Why, why would people be ashamed of this message? You read this in Romans. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. What does he say? It's the very power of God for salvation. This message that you're pro- proclaiming, Stephen Sharnock says that God's power accompanies its message. Not always, because it's not always fruitfully delivered. But God's very power accompanies this message. Do you believe that? Brothers and sisters, do you believe that when you declare the gospel, when I say the gospel, you're proclaiming Jesus Christ and His kingdom, the deliverance of sin, redemption from sin, that you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, that Christ is seated at the throne, He is your King, and that the world owes its obedience to Him. And it's only possible because He gave His life on the cross and shed His blood. On our behalf. And now that we can walk in empowered by the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Him. Are you excited about that message? You should be. And if you're not, something's radically wrong. Right? It's radically wrong. Think about it. 
your creator, before the foundations of the world were laid, had you in mind to join you to his son, to redeem you to himself, Ephesians chapter 1 says. That's exciting. And then he has caused you to walk in his spirit, created you for good works, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, to walk in them. That's exciting. So you weren't just redeemed for some future event. You were redeemed for something now here. So why would we be ashamed of that? Let's look at uh, what Greg Steer says in his article, 10 Super Lame Excuses for Not Sharing the Gospel. I like that. The title fits me well. right? 10 Super Lame Reasons for Why We Don't Share the Gospel. Number one, he says, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Yeah, well, I don't have the gift of mercy, but I still show it, he says. <laughs> right? And you may not have the gift of evangelism, but you still should do it. And he says that quoting Romans 1.16. Don't be ashamed of it. I don't know any lost people, point two. Get to know some. Get out of your comfort zone. Get out of your bubble. And get to know some. Go talk to some people. As we say, playing any gamer out there who's played games for a serious period of time, as Greg brought this morning, go touch some grass, bro. Man, you need, you need to go outside. Check out the sun. Get some vitamin D. Go talk to some lost people. Right? Go, go engage with them. Connect with them. Why are you afraid? What's stopping you from doing that? Number three, that's the preacher's job. We pay our preachers to go, to go do that work for us. That's the evangelist's job. He said, then go back to point three. That's wrong. It's all of our work. According to Ephesians 4, verse 12, we here as evangelists, pastors, teachers, are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, right? That's what we're here for. The question that you need to ask yourself, that we need to ask ourselves, is what is that work? I shared on a recent live stream. We should be out there doing that, demonstrating it. Is everybody super gifted at engaging with people live on, t on, you know, on YouTube? No. No. But some of us might have that ability to do that. But it's there to equip you so that when you are involved in conversations with people, wherever that might look, that you now have the tools because you've seen it done you know it's possible, and now you know what to do. You're equipped. That doesn't mean you have to be live on TV. But you still are equipped. You're given those tools, right? So it's not just the preacher's job or the evangelist's job. We are all called to evangelize. I don't know what to say. Start studying. It's that simple. Start studying. Join us. When we ask, so when we ask for people to come out with us to Planned Parenthood, may I call you out, Grant? You came out and you, you started coming out with us, right? Did you learn something by coming out with us as we engage with people? Grant and I have had some amazing conversations with people when he's come out there. And we're both doing it together. There are mistakes that I might make or uh, things that I'm, I wish I would have said, but what ends up happening? Every time. You bounce off of each other. Greg and I go out and it's awesome. You're going out and you're shoulder to shoulder and you're engaging with people and He'll say some things that I, I was like, oh, wow, I wish I would have thought of that, or that was great. And then I'll say some things, and you're playing off each other. And you're learning. Rob and I had a wonderful opportunity to have an, what was that, like an hour and a half long conversation with a gentleman named George outside of Planned Parenthood. At the very end of it, <laughs> Rob says, wow, I've never seen a better representation of Gnosticism in my life. He was learning as we go. This is what discipleship looks like. It's walking shoulder to shoulder with people and putting our theological boots to the ground and doing what we say we believe. 
in all matters of life and faith. All matters. So if you don't know what to say, start learning. Start studying. Be a reader. Be a student of theology. Be a student of God's Word. Shoulder to shoulder with people. Walk shoulder to shoulder with people and engage. Get involved. I just share the gospel with my life and not my lips. Point six. You're like an airplane with one wing, he says. We are called to do both. You're called to do both. You can't be an airplane with one wing. Okay? Airplanes can't fly with one wing. Amen? So, be both. You're called to live out the gospel as you are being sanctified in Christ, empowered by the Spirit, despising sin, and, and walking in newness of life. And... Be a faithful representative of the Lord Jesus Christ whom you call Savior. Okay? Who we call. It's about me too. Okay? I don't want people to reject me. That is super lame. I don't want people to reject me. I think personally that's one of the number one reasons. I'm worried about rejection. We hate rejection, right? We want to we be homies with people. Right? We want people to be our friends. We don't want our family members to despise us because we love Jesus. So we'll kind of soften things up. We won't get like as hard. We'll maybe be careful to kind of tiptoe around certain things that Scripture has to say about certain things. You know, maybe we just won't, we won't pick this battle. We won't die on every hill, right? So we start to convince ourselves that, well, maybe the relationship is more important than the gospel. Maybe the relationship is more important than the truth of Scripture. We've all battled that, haven't we? We've all battled that. We all have some family member that we really love, we appreciate, we look up to even. My father's an atheist. I look up to him. I love my father. He hates God. He hates his family. And I want to build a relationship with him. And do you know why I cannot? Because of the gospel. My dad hates me because of the gospel. You know how hard that is for a son who just wants to hang out with his dad? And he avoids me because he doesn't want to talk about Jesus. This is one time about the Bible. Now, granted, I blew my father out early on. I was super cage stage. Now, you can imagine me now, right? A little cagey right now, even a little bit. Right, Barrett? Cage. We cage it up. Some of us are fighters. Others not. I, have, I need to restrain from fighting. Most people have recognized that about me by now. So when I first came to the faith, man, I lit my dad up. Boy, wrecked that guy. I was in the full-on, I was in the premier platinum member of the Jerks for Jesus Club. <laughs> I, I, I wrecked him. And it ruined our relationship, not for the right reason. It wasn't because I was loving and gentle, desiring my father to see, you know, be led to the faith. It was because I, I came in, man, with a sword, and I like dashed him to pieces, and I butt-stalked him, you know, whatever. I hit I, I, every bit of it. And it wasn't out of the intention of seeing him come to the faith. It was, I wounded him. I apologize later, but I'm convinced even to this day that that hasn't changed a bit. My dad's hardness has pushed even further. My mom, who I hope is watching online, mom, why aren't you here today? I'm just kidding. She's recovering from COVID, so we'll be, we'll be sensitive to her. I love you, mom. You know that. I got to call you out every chance I get. So, uh, my mom will attest, any of you have a chance to meet my mom, and she's gone through some pretty hard stuff being unequally yoked with my father. That caused division in their relationship. That caused division in their marriage. We know what it's like to lose friendships. I've lost friendships now as a result of just 
standing firm in the scriptures and not not intentionally out of no desire to you know be mean to people I, I want to pursue these friendships I love these people I spent a lot of time with these people as we say we ate ribs with these dudes right and, and you're close to them and what ends up happening you know you, you start to notice something really uncomfortable they're saying something to you about you know maybe some hot political topic or maybe it's just like the way that they manage their household, whatever it might be, they're sharing a frustration about things they're going through at work. And you know, in the back of your mind, you're like, well, if the scripture has something to say about that, and I know your character and I know your attitude, and man, it's about to get real uncomfortable. I might have to share something with you that might cause some strain on our relationship. And it's at that very moment where we go, I need to share this and I need courage to do it. And it's better to honor Christ in this circumstance. And it's a, a, a primary opportunity to preach the gospel with this person, to share them. And when I say the gospel, I'm talking about all matters, right? You might have some family members who have recently come out. Neighbors. Part of the LGBTQ community. We have a bunch in our neighborhood, don't we, Greg? A bunch. See all those rainbow flags? They're everywhere. My kids are like, man, dad, man, man. I'm like, yeah, I know. Um, and, and, you know, we have neighbors who we're close to. And we have worked really hard to try to build a relationship with them. And they know I'm a pastor. And man, I tell you what, what do they do? They intentionally prompt me. What do you think of this, Jeremy? What do you think Jeremy says? Well, this is what Scripture teaches. Oh, I hate you. I hate you, right? They do not like me, you guys. They like my family. We have lost relationships with neighbors. It's horrible. I hate it. But we have to say at some point, okay, listen, our relationship is going to, we're going to do everything we can to love you, you know, help you in any way that we can. We're going to be there for you. But I tell you what, it's going to come to a point. We're going to come to loggerheads. Your worldview is in direct contradiction with the scriptures. And this may cause strain. It may cause a problem in our relationship, but I need to tell you the truth of the word. Why? Because what does the truth of the word do? It sets us free. It sets us free. And if I'm afraid to tell that to someone, I'm ashamed. You know, we may have siblings. We may have kids. We, neighbors, it doesn't matter. You have to be willing to at some point draw the line and say, listen, I love you enough to tell you this. This is what you need. to." I don't want to give someone some forced evangelistic presentation. Amen, please don't. Hey guys, there's nothing worse, and I'm sure you felt this way, and we've taught on this subject matter quite a bit in our Sunday schools previous to this location. Uh, Preaching the gospel is not a pitch. It's not a pitch for a multi-level marketing scheme, right? Amen? Right? Exactly. You know, call in your fellow disciple and go, hey man, I I, I really want you to hear from this guy, you know, because, you know, he can explain it better than I can. And then, you know, you bring in your boy, dude, and you both pounce on him, and then you close them, right? That's not what you do. We're not signing people up for the gospel, okay? And you guys have all felt that way, I guarantee you, in some way. We all have, right? You're sitting there and you're like, oh, when do I fit in the gospel? Wrong. It's not when do you fit it in. It should be exuding from your life. It should be overflowing from who you are. I am a Christian. And when I speak to you, I'm going to speak to you in Christian terms. I'm going to quote the scriptures as my ultimate authority, right? That's the way it should be. So it's not a pitch. Evangelism doesn't work in a post-Christian culture. Point nine. News. We're not in a post-Christian culture. 
one. Last time I checked, it wasn't like the Lord had just you know resolved everything, handed the kingdom over to the Father, and there was no sin in the world. Um, that hasn't happened yet. There is really no such thing as an absolute Christian culture. It may have been somewhat of a semblance of it, but it definitely needed to be sanctified. Anybody who's read the Puritans, if we want to you know, look at America as maybe an example of a Christian culture, they needed to be sanctified. There, there were things that they needed to grow in theologically, even though we still glean from them today in tremendous ways. We actually are right now losing a lot of those Christian principles that they founded our, our nation upon. Greg has been, done a great job the last couple of weeks. I encourage you to come to Sunday school for those who haven't made it out uh, to go listen to that. Our first stream on YouTube today, you can go see what he taught on, on the Magdeburg Confession and how Christians were involved in civics and what that meant to stand firm, right? So we don't live in a, a, a post-Christian culture. We have yet to discover a Christian culture. And for those who have a more, you know, uh, an outlook that, that believes that the Lord is king over all the world and that will ultimately reconcile things to himself by the blood of his cross and that he is working out in, in through redemptive history, putting all of his enemies under his feet. You believe that and you're optimistic about those things despite the battles that we face, that you're going to hold to a position that, that believes ultimately the Lord wins. He's victorious in history. And Jonathan has done a fantastic job over the last few weeks of preaching on that very subject, what that actually looks like. So whether or not you hold to a more pessimistic view or an optimistic view, the one thing you can believe is that Jesus Christ ultimately in the end will be victorious over history. But we have not lived in a post-Christian culture. We don't. We live in a very pagan culture that needs a lot of Christianity and it needs a lot of Christians. And then last but not least here, uh, I have other priorities. And I love what he says. Well, as someone once said, the Great Commission is not a suggestion, right? It's a command. It's not a good, it's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission. Let that be an introduction to today's sermon. So I am not ashamed, Paul says. It is the power of God. Those are the two things that I want to focus on. One, this idea of a shame, uh, being ashamed comes from the Greek word. Now, if I butcher this, Zol, tell me. Tell me if I butcher it. Epis uh, hunome. Epis hunome? Close? He's looking at me. Probably not right. To experience, this means to experience a painful feeling or a sense of loss of status because of some particular event or activity, which also means to be ashamed. What might cause that? I wanted to ask the hard question. What might cause that? What might provoke that within us? We looked at a little bit today, those 10 lame examples, right? Of why people would maybe be hesitant to share the gospel to evangelize. Well, what did we see? The gospel, Paul says, is offensive. It's offensive. It divides. We hate division. The gospel also, though, claims that we have a personal creator that we're accountable to. And we have rebelled against him. People hate hearing that. They hate that. The gospel claims that we are accountable to God's spoken word. The gentleman we spoke to yesterday said, well, the Bible's kind of okay. I mean, it's a good thing. But as we grow and learn, we also discover that there are many other texts that we should probably adhere to. Not what Jesus said, right? We said, Rob, that's not what Jesus said. He said, my word is the word that you must stand and build your house upon. It's my word that you're saved. There is no other word by which you must be, a man can be saved. 
Paul says, how will they know, Romans 10, unless it's preached? How will they hear? Peter says that it's by that word preached that you were born again. The seed of the word implanted in you that you were born again. The gospel exposes the darkness of our heart and blatant wickedness in society. The gospel demonstrates our spiritual bankruptcy and desperate need for redemption and transformation. The gospel claims that we have a king who has conquered the lawlessness of all the world's inhabitants, past, present, and future, and suffered the judgment of Almighty God on behalf in the most unlikely way, on a Roman cross with his own blood. And we all now owe him our allegiance and obedience. People hate hearing that. They hate that, right? The gospel claims that the king will return in judgment to set all things right once and for all time. And his resurrection from the dead is the vindication of that claim. People hate hearing that. Someone resurrected from the dead. Just think about all of the, all of the pushback that you get, right? Take this time as we go through this and ask yourself the hard question. Just set it before you and say, okay, when push comes to shove, when my theological boots have to hit the ground and I'm engaging with a really tough conversation, a tough situation, a circumstance that I have to make a hard decision in, what saith God's word and what causes me to hesitate? So we have to ask, what do we do secretly maybe and overtly that tends us to cause to be ashamed of the gospel? First, we're ashamed of scripture, aren't we? We're ashamed of it. We're ashamed of God's Word. We have to ask ourselves the hard question all the time. Is Scripture the final authority on all matters of life and faith? I mean, is it really? (laughs) George said no yesterday. George had this wonderful explanation of how it's not the final authority. And yet he had some idea of how to tell people they're wrong. I asked him, I said, okay, well, you're kind of like the Mormons. I mean, the Mormons believe the same thing. They have other texts and books, and they believe that revelation has come over time and that, you know, the Bible is important, but Uh, not the authority on all matters in life and faith. There's further revelation that we can abide by. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's right. And I went, okay, well, what if it contradicts what was said earlier? Well, then that's wrong. Well, why is it wrong, George, when we just get to make it up as we go? Right? Well, it's just my private spiritual experience. I I really know it's right based on this spiritual understanding that we kind of arrive to. I said, that's what the Mormons and Muslims both say. I've had the Spirit bear witness to me that what Joseph Smith said is true. And in all of the other revelations that follow. How do we know if it's right or not? But yet, we question it, don't we? Is Scripture, as our confession says, the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience? Is it? Well, when we're placed in that circumstance, just think about it. <clears throat> Having a deal with a family member that just came out. Gosh dang it. The scriptures say this about that, LGBTQ-ness. Man, I want to justify why I can just not have to say anything at all. Maybe we can have gay Christians. Maybe we can say, well, that was kind of a product of its time, huh? Maybe we can say, well, Paul might have been in error. He was only talking about one little, like, narrow aspect of that, but not all that we experience today, right? What are the common responses? The Bible is the Word of God, and it's helpful in some areas, but not all. And in some cases, it's antiquated, making, making it irrelevant to our current context. First example number one, homosexuality. It's irrelevant to our present context, they say. That's not really what Paul meant saying that word. Anybody has studied the Revoice conference and what has come out of it in the narrative saying, well, you can be gay and be a Christian. What's the biblical response to that? 
And why would you pause? Why would we pause? What stops us from just saying, that is wrong. Think about it. Second thing is, an example that we can look at is like Christians involved in civics, Christian ethics in general. Greg, again, taught that was a very serious. What are we wrestling with right now? We have a huge majority of scare quote Christians who will tell you that we do not live in a theocracy. So therefore, we have no sense in needing to be involved in politics when the Bible is the most political book written in history. It really is. What does it say? You have a king. That's political. Number one. And everything else that follows from you have a king. Not only that, you have a creator who owns all this world that you live in. And that creator has certain expectations of you, including the way you govern society. And it's not just okay for you to make it up on your own. So where, where does this come? Why, why all of a sudden, okay, when the icky stuff of politics comes along, which most of us aren't really interested in, let's just be honest, I wasn't for years, and then I was like kind of forced to based on these new convictions. Because as I'm reading Scripture, it kind of doesn't allow for it. Romans 13, by the way, is not an excuse to avoid politics. If anything, if you read it and you dig into it, you go, oh my gosh. How is the magistrate going to know what righteousness is and to be a terror to evildoers? Do pagans get to come up with that all on their own? Are they going to come up with a righteous standard and do what's right in the eyes of God? No, they're not. Not even remotely close. Matter of fact, they're going to do, like Scripture says often, think about how many times you've heard this, they're going to do what's right in their own eyes. Don't we see that in the society today? Greg brought up, look at the last 10 years. Look at the last 20 years, okay? Look at the exponential landslide of morality in, our, in, just, in just our country. Look at our state alone. Look what was just passed in anticipation of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. What were, our, what were our state representatives doing and our senators doing? Scurrying to hurry up because they knew that they, they have the House, they have the Senate, and they have the governor's seat so they can push this bill through and get it signed into law as fast as possible. And what were they all saying? We need to do this before Roe v. Wade is overturned because it's not law, it's court precedent. So man, we better make sure that we codify our right to destroy our children. Let me ask you, do Christian, are Christians permitted to say nothing to that? We're not. Matter of fact, we have every responsibility as being part of a, resp- uh, a representative government to say something, to get in the face of it, to expose it, and to encourage what? A righteous standard to be upheld so that that governing authority can walk in responsibility before the living God to be a terror to evildoers. Not a popular message, by the way. Not at all. Not even remotely close popular, right? Let's look at another example about why we might be ashamed of Scripture. The Bible is like any other written document. Subject to corruption over time, and it's really left up to private interpretation. We just heard that yesterday, didn't we, Rob? Subject to corruption over time, and it's really about you know your individual interpretation. We can't really know collectively and be unified on one central truth. I mean, man, just look at how many denominations there are. What makes your confession any better than the Westminster, right? Or any other confession for that matter. What about the Anglican confession? The Episcopalians? Who are those guys? The Mormons? And so on. Okay? So look at it. What kind of attacks might you get from Mormonism and atheism? Mormonism and atheism will say to you, and really Mormonism, let me say, let's do Mormonism and Islam, for example, okay? 
what are they both? They're both biblically-based cults. And they're both biblically-based eschatological cults. And they're both biblically-based restorationist eschatological cults. Put that all together in one sentence, right? Why? Why would I say that? They're saying to you that something was lost in history. Very simply. Something was perverted. Something was corrupted. God's Word. God's people. We lost that. And then God gave me this revelation. This new revelation. That what? We need to restore the church. And the end times are near. So we need to do that with some sort of urgency. We need to make disciples because the time is near. The time is coming. Muslims believe that what? They are going to win through the sword. They are going to deliver the kingdom through violence. Mormons believe that they're going to deliver the kingdom through witness. Jehovah's Witnesses believe they're going to deliver the kingdom through witness. They're all restorational cults. And they're biblically based. So what should our response be? Genesis chapter 1 says very clearly that we have a creator. Okay? That made us. And he valued us in a particular way. Our relationship structures and context. And also its intended end. And we don't get to decide those things on our own. We don't get to decide those things. So for those who are struggling with image. Like I think that I can change what I am. Because I value myself and I get to decide that based on my wants and desires. Is wrong. You cannot change what you are. God either made you what? Genesis chapter 1. Male or female. And then he designed that with a relation structure and a context in mind. An intended end in mind. To build a culture to his glory. We don't get to choose those things. That is a gospel opportunity. You don't get to choose those things. It's not up to you. No matter how, many, how much chemicals you douse your body, hormones you douse your body, whatever you cut off and whatever you put on, will not make you anything different than what you actually are. And you're lying to yourself. You're a liar. You are deceived. And you're lying to other people. And you know what you're demanding? Culturally, because you want to build a governing system that upholds this, celebrates this, and, and exalts it? You're demanding everybody go along with the lie with you. It'd be the equivalent of someone telling you, no, a, I know 2 plus 2 used to equal 4, but that's racist. 2 plus 2 can equal whatever we want. It could equal 5 now. And how dare you say 2 plus 2 equals 4? You need to adopt my position. You need to toe the line with me. And if you don't, you are going to be removed from society because you are bigoted. You're a racist. Are you going to toe the line? Are you going to celebrate it by putting emblems up on your business so that you can collect trillions of dollars because you know these people represent a huge amount of buying power because you're worried about being canceled because you don't believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5 or anything else we want to come up today? Are you going to fall into that trap? Because it's a slippery slope, isn't it? You start creating a governing protection around these special classes of the 2 plus 2 equal fibers. And then the 2 plus 2 equals fibers are telling you how to live your life now. Demanding that you go along with them. If you don't, you're evil. How dare you? You must be wicked. Romans 13 says, God appointed those governing authorities to uphold His righteous standard as prescribed by His Word. We don't get to come up with that on our own. At the moment we do, we do what's right in our own eyes. What do we do? We invite the promulgation of evil in society. We want to come up with our own value system. Our own identity. We want to change around relationship structures and patterns and context. We want to take out sexual behavior outside 
of the marriage in which God has endorsed and blessed. We want to take out the rearing of our children from a family to a village that raises the child. We promulgate the problem of evil. The moment we decide we get to come up with what's good and evil on our own, we encourage it, and we encourage the destruction of society, whether we like that or not. In 1 Peter 1, 23-25, he says very clearly that the Creator is the one who spoke all things into existence and sustains it by the word of His power, and He is perfectly capable of sustaining His written word despite every attempt to corrupt it and misinterpret it. We don't get to dictate what is in it and what isn't in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit does. 2 Peter 1, 20-21. So to believe otherwise rejects God's promises. Think about this. It rejects God's promises to uphold and sustain His Word. It's an offense to the third person of the triune Godhead. The Holy Spirit, it destroys the Gospel. If you believe that the Word of God can be corrupted, then you do not believe that God can be faithful in delivering His promises. If you believe that the Word of God can be corrupted, then you are not saved. Because it's by the Word of God that you are saved. It's the Word preached. It is the power of God for salvation. If that can be corrupted, ladies and gentlemen, we are wasting our time here today. We are just patting each other on, on the back. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter anymore. That is the way you need to take the Word of God. Secondly, we are ashamed of God. And we are ashamed of the good news of His kingdom. Ask the question, is God alone the eternal creator and sustainer of all creation? Holy and righteous, eternal, infinitely wise, transcendent and personal, perfectly revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, sovereignly in control of everything in His created order, down to the smallest particle. Is that the God that you talk about when you talk to people? What are some common responses to that? A vast number of people in the world don't believe or have never heard the gospel. Everyone has a right to their personal beliefs. I have no right to judge them. We all have a place at the table. A Christian said that. Is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, I guess if we go back to our shamedness of Scripture, we can't really say that like Scripture is really the ultimate authority on all matters of life and faith. That leads to directly our being ashamed of God and the good news of his message. The fact that Jesus said, and Rob quoted this yesterday to George, he's the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through him. Do you believe that? People walked away, disgusted at Jesus Christ himself for making that claim. How dare you say that? No, we would like to believe that those who have not heard the gospel have a chance. God's merciful, God's loving. Who are we to judge? So people say things like, Christians say things like in this context, as you're gauging with them, they say, we don't have the right to tell people that they're condemned for not being a Christian. Only God can do that. Judge not that you be not judged. Matthew 7, 1. Is that what that means? No. No, he was dealing with the hypocrisy of making judgments and then going out and doing it. Jesus commands us to to judge with righteous judgment. Specifically, right? That's in John 7, 24. God is loving. He desires us to be in a relationship with Him, hoping that maybe we choose Him. Wrong. Ephesians 1, 3-14 very clearly says, it's God's prerogative whom He redeems and reserves for judgment. Quoting John three eighteen, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And you read John chapter 1, what does it say? 
has nothing to do with you willing it. Being born again is an act of God. Nothing of your will. Not done by the will of man, but by the will of God. That's hard. People hate that. Debating theology, right, Barrett? People hate that. Do not like to hear that. They want to believe that they have something to do with it, and they don't. It's God's prerogative. God is merciful. He's not going to judge people who have never heard the gospel. That's not true. That's not even remotely true. Jesus says they're condemned. They are condemned. They need to hear the gospel. Paul says in Romans 10, I quoted earlier, how are they here unless it's been preached? It's by that word being preached that we are saved. We have to say it. We have to deliver the message. God has chosen, through that instrument, to redeem people. And it's foolishness to some, right? Another example. What would nations who are not Christians say if you told them that Jesus was king and they are all accountable to him and are obligated to uphold his law, to be obedient to him? Who are we to say? How dare you say that? Welcome to the book of Acts. That is Acts. That is exactly what the apostles said, didn't they? John 1, 1 through 3, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 all say that everything is Christ's. It's all his. He is God in the flesh. He is the sustainer of all. And after making purification for his sin, or for, for, the, for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's his. Jesus came and said to them, according to the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Discipleship is not just a monologue. It's not a word preached. But it is also a walking alongside and an encouragement and an instruction of. It's not the hit and go, right? Drop the bomb and leave. It's, I'm involved in your life. I'm appointed, as Paul says in Acts 17, to this time, place, and habitation. God has given me this circumference of ministry to be involved in. And I, in every format, am going to do everything that I can to represent the Lord Jesus Christ as best as I can. And in my failures, ask for forgiveness. I want to see my city blessed by the word of God. So what does the Lord have to say about this? He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whatever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses it and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The Lord Jesus Christ will be ashamed of us if we're ashamed of him. But don't be discouraged. Think about Peter for an example. Peter was ashamed of the Lord, wasn't he? I think he is the ultimate example of this. Here, Peter had a, a prime opportunity. The Lord's arrested, and they are asking him. And what did Jesus say to him prior to this happening? He said, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, before the morning comes. They arrested him, and they were asking him, hey, weren't you one of his disciples? And what did he say? Whoop, nope, never knew the guy, right? I believe that that passage is given to us to come to a recognition today that if you have done that in your heart, and that if we have done that in our hearts, that we, like Peter, when restored, need to be like Peter after the Lord ascended. Think of this. Peter was restored. Look at Peter's attitude when he was restored. Totally changed. His whole outlook and attitude. He even was later, you know, he's still making mistakes, he was later rebuked by the Apostle Paul 
for kind of stumbling backwards. You could see that there was a tendency in Peter in the book of Acts. He wouldn't even enter the house of Cornelius. He's like, whoa, I wouldn't even go in there, bro. I don't want to be condemned, you know. I'd be condemned by the Jews if I do that, right? Uh, oh, I'm afraid to eat with the Gentiles when the Jews are around, particularly the Judaizers, because I want to put on a good face. Peter struggled, guys, even after the Lord had ascended. But the Lord graciously restored him. We need that restoration today. That restoration empowered the Apostle Peter to walk out in strength. We all need that. So if we truly believe Scripture and the gospel of the kingdom of God, when push came to shove, how would we live? If Scripture is the authority of all matters in life and faith, then the gospel must be. Let me repeat that. If Scripture is the authority on all matters and life and faith, then the gospel must be, right? That means, think about this for a moment. This is, how, this, this is what gets me excited, you guys. Everything is the Lord's. The Scriptures speak on all matters of life and faith, and therefore all those matters of life and faith is somehow oriented to the good news of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. That means every matter can be spoken to in some way. It isn't this weird pitch, you know. Wait, let me sneak in Jesus and let me talk about his, you know, the prophecies about him. Let me talk about, you know, let me do the Romans road with him real quick. Let me put out the draft, the bridge. Let me work through all these like, templates. No, 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 stop that. Just stop that right now. Every matter of life and faith is the Lord's. And so when those are out of whack, think about it. When those are out of whack, when something's wrong, something's amiss because you're so familiar with Scripture. It's so seated in your heart. When you hear it and when you see it, it's like, whoop, red flag comes up and you, you can immediately speak to it and you can associate it with things from like Ecclesiastes, from Job, from Leviticus, from Jonah. I mean, you... you it's now, and you get the Proverbs are just soaked in there, right? You want to walk in wisdom before the Lord. The wisdom literature is just saturated in your heart. And when, you, when someone says something, or some governor says something, or, you know, some family member says something, and, and, you, and you see that it's impacting and affecting their life because ideas have consequences, we should be at the ready to correct it, what? According to biblical wisdom. All matters of life and faith. Therefore, the gospel speaks to all matters of life and faith. So consider now what mental life and interpersonal relationships would look like if we took God at his word and fervently asserted the biblical worldview in every area of our lives personally, in our families, in our work life, and then therefore society in general, in civics. My friends, the gospel speaks to every matter of life and faith. So remember, this is what the gospel, <laughs> this is what makes the gospel offensive and causes divisions in relationships. It's that. Because it speaks to all matters of life and faith. The gospel causes us to realize that we have a personal creator that we're accountable to and have rebelled against him and are in need of redemption. The gospel holds the world accountable to his word. Every bit of the world. Not some parts, all parts. All matters of life and faith. The gospel exposes the darkness of our hearts and blatant wickedness that we are part of the problem of evil. We contribute to the problem of evil in society when we rebel against God. That is lawlessness. This is the very thing that Christ came to destroy. That is what you're standing on. That is what you're exposing when you stand in the faith and you stand on God's word. The gospel demonstrates that our spiritual bankruptcy and desperate need for redemption and transformation. We need that. We all know that. The gospel proclaims, again, that we have a king who has conquered all of the lawlessness of the world's inhabitants, past, present, and future. And now he has suffered 
the judgment of Almighty God on our behalf in the most unlikely way, on the cross, shedding his own blood on our behalf. We all owe him our allegiance and obedience, which is only possible by the empowerment of his Spirit. We need to walk according to the Spirit, walk in the fruits of the Spirit. Finally, the gospel holds to the great hope that our King will return in judgment to set all things right once and for all time. The gates of Hades will not prevail against his church. We win in history, whether or not we lose battles. Now, the the battles, cumulatively speaking, we win. Why? Because Christ wins and we are in Christ. His resurrection from the dead was the very vindication of that. We are alive in him. So, as our life's as, as Christians, our life story should end a little bit like Paul's, which is our verse, our, our, our missional verse, if you will, for our church. Let me read it to you. So when on trial in Rome for proclaiming the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, Luke writes, quoting Paul, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And then Paul lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming, the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let, us be, let, it, let that be said about our lives at the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would have its effect in our hearts. As I preach to myself today, I need to hear this over and over again. I need to be encouraged by the reality of the power of your word, that it cuts to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It is the discerner of the thoughts and tensions of our hearts. And all things stand naked and exposed to the eyes of you, whom we will give an account. That it is, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, a great and mighty weapon, casting down the strongholds of the enemy, the vain philosophies, the human imaginations. And we can stand upon it as you promised to build our house on the rock that you promise as we are disciples of it, that it will indeed set us free. And that we can walk in boldness. I pray that a burden had been lifted maybe off the shoulders of my brothers and sisters today, recognizing that it is you who is the Lord of salvation. And that in using your word and understanding your word, that we could come to greater clarity of what it means to be in a relationship with you, our Creator. That we can walk in boldness knowing that when we step out in faith, although we might face adversity, we have, a, we have mighty armor to conquer the enemy with. The enemy cannot prevail against us, nor his greatest strongholds. Although we face difficulties, trials, and battles, those are promised. You promised that there will be adversity, that the world would, as you say in your high priestly prayer in John 17, despise us. They would hate us. But don't be worried. Be of good cheer. You are with us. I pray my brothers and sisters are encouraged to be witnesses to you to love you and adore you and to appreciate your word.